Nick, I'm going to put you on the spot. All right. Okay. <laughs> Do you think that you can guess our national debt to the nearest trillion dollar amount? When I was a child, I remember it being seven trillion dollars. Okay. It's around 30 now. Wow. I mean, can you even fathom what 30 trillion dollars looks like? It's comically large. One of my father's favorite exercises was this. Do you know the thing about the difference between a million seconds and billion seconds and a trillion seconds? Is this a trick question? No, no, no. <laughs> a million seconds was last week. It was 11 days ago. Oh, yeah. A billion seconds is when you were born, Hannah. 31 years ago is a billion seconds. A trillion seconds is over 31,000 years ago. Exponents, man. 30 trillion is a huge number, right? Because when you and I are talking about large amounts of money, we're probably talking about, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, maybe millions maybe. if we've got stars in our eyes. But 30 trillion, that's a lot. I mean, it doesn't sound good. Like, I feel like it's a bad sign when your debt is so large that it's basically unfathomable. And I feel like it's something politicians are always arguing about. But I don't really understand what that number means or why it matters. Well, let's dig into it. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And this is Civics 101. And today we are talking about the national debt. We had four surplus budgets yeah. when I was president. But you can't balance the budget in a busted economy. The national debt is political. It's a frequently used jab against the president. And it's a favorite talking point in political ads. Then I learned about a new miracle drug made in Washington, D.C. Spend it all. Spend it all is Washington's answer to all the painful problems Americans face. Politicians use the national debt as a tool when they're trying to get projects funded or defunded especially those that will help their standing amongst their constituents. They want to run up $30 trillion worth of debt that we've got to pay back, by the way. Uh, if they want to do this, then let them... And ultimately, it's a huge factor in our government's ability to function and in our country's financial health. And we're not going to accept this new normal of a weak economy, no new jobs, and shrinking wages. We could prevent a catastrophic default with a simple majority vote tomorrow. If Republicans would just get out of the damn way, we could get this all done. All right, Hannah, so start off, what is the national debt? Why do we have it in the first place? So when we talk about the national debt, most people are referring to the debt of the federal government. This is Louise Shainer. She's the policy director at the Hutchins Center for Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. And before that, she worked as an economist with the Federal Reserve. She spoke with Civics 101 in 2017. The debt is the total amount that we owe. Okay, so it's basically the amount that we've borrowed in the past plus interest and not repaid. So how does this debt work? I assume it's not like a credit card or a mortgage where you borrow a specific amount of money and you're expected to pay it back eventually from your income? Well, so what happens is the other country writes a check to buy our bonds. So they hold our bonds, which means we owe them money. Wait, what does she mean by bonds? What are bonds? Yeah, basically, the federal government has a revenue, mostly through taxes. But in order to afford expenses that outstrip revenue, it sells bonds. 
So a bond is a certificate that the government gives you. And it's a certificate saying, yes, we borrowed money from you and we're going to pay it back with interest. So it's like investing in the stock market, but you're really investing in the government. Yeah, these bonds help finance the federal government's day-to-day operations in addition to revenue that the government gets from things like taxes. Well, I mean, think about it. War bonds. Yeah. War bonds were considered an act of patriotism. You are buying bonds because you want to support your government, but also your government isn't saying simply donate money to us. They're saying buy war bonds now, and eventually you are going to make that money back with interest. Any bonds today? Bonds of freedom, what I'm selling. Any bonds today? Scrape up the most you can. Here comes the freedom man. But nowadays, the majority of our debt, known as public debt, is owned by foreign countries like Japan, China, the UK, even Luxembourg. Has our government always had a debt? We started that way and we've always had debt. And I think that many people understand that we need to have some level of debt, that it's actually healthy in an economy for the federal government to have some level of debt. Our country's debt traces all the way back to the revolution, when the Continental Congress created an early version of a treasury to help fund, what else, the war effort. Decades later, the establishment of the Treasury Department gave the federal government a more efficient way to do business with other countries, to demonstrate itself as an economic power by borrowing and lending and participating in the global market, which in turn provided funding for costs at home. This sounds kind of like a credit score. Like, when you or I borrow money, we establish credit, and we get a credit score that, among other things, is used by banks and lenders to decide how financially sound we might be. Right. It's actually not too dissimilar for the federal government. Our government's financial relationships with other countries matter for our overall economic health. And by the way, the U.S. government has its own credit rating. Really? So how much debt is too much debt? There is some limit on how much we can owe, uh, because at some point people won't want to lend to us. Um, But, you know, the United States government has uh, sort of all of the potential revenues in the future going forward uh, to pay off the debt. And so um, we can basically maintain a pretty high level of the debt, just keep borrowing every year, just as long as we don't let it keep growing as a share of GDP. GDP, you know what that means, right? Yeah, gross domestic product. It is the market value of our country's economy. It is the value of all of the goods and services produced in this country for a specific time frame. And the federal debt is measured against the GDP. So how much debt does the government have relative to how much money the economy is generating? In 2017, when we talked to Louise, the federal debt was about $14 trillion. Wow. Which is about 75% of GDP. And at 75% of GDP, it's actually higher than it's ever been, except during World War II, when we had a lot of borrowing to finance World War II. So some people would say 75% is quite high. We better take measures right now. Other people would say, look, 75 is not so bad. We're doing just fine. But let's try to, um, you know, not let it go higher than that for a very long time. Or maybe 100 is okay. There's really differences of opinion on that, obviously. By the way, at the end of 2021, after nearly two years of a global pandemic, the debt-to-GDP ratio was estimated at around 137%. Wow. 
That is a huge jump, Nick, from the 75% Louise talked about back in 2017. That's massive. So it doesn't sound like there's like a set rule about how high our government's debt should be in proportion to the GDP. Well, so that's an interesting question. We don't really know what level of debt is too high. I think we would have thought, you know, 10 or 20 years ago that the current debt-to-GDP ratio at 75 percent, if we got this high, would have had bad repercussions in terms of interest rates. So what are interest rates? Interest rates are how much people demand in order to lend to the government, right? So uh, if they buy a treasury, they expect to get interest on it. So if they think that um, the probability that the government won't pay off the treasury is high, like there's some probability of default, they might say, well, you know, I'm probably going to get paid back, but I may not. So you have to pay me a lot in interest. That makes sense. The likelihood that you're going to be able to pay that money back impact how willing someone is to take the risk of lending it to you and how much interest they'll charge you for lending you money. Then all of a sudden, the government would be having to pay very uh, high amounts of interest, which means they'd either have to borrow even more or they'd have to cut spending or raise taxes kind of dramatically. And that's kind of the risk, that you're going along and all of a sudden interest rates go sky high or lenders refuse to lend to you and then you have to make very rapid adjustments that can be quite painful. All right, so what happens if... At the beginning of the year, for example, we've got a certain level of debt. But as the year goes on, the government is spending more money than they expected or the economy slowed down or something. So the debt's just getting bigger and bigger. What you're talking about is called the deficit. Deficits are the amount that we borrow in any given year. And so to next year's debt is going to be last year's debt plus this year's deficit. Right. So the debt is the total amount, the balance, and then the deficit is the change in any given year. Oh, the deficit rank. You know that song? Oh, yeah, the deficit rank. Those budget gaps can be a 12-digit drag. I'm telling you, that's the deficit. They really made a mess of it. That's the deficit rank. Thank you. I'm pretty sure that we could probably find a Simpsons reference for nearly every single episode of Civics 101. So is there any kind of regulatory limit on how high our debt can go? Like some rule that says, stop, you cannot borrow any more money. That brings us to a little thing called the debt ceiling. And we'll get to that after the break. Just don't break it. Unless it's glass. (laughs) But just a preview, we are one of the only countries with a debt ceiling. And it's been at the center of several political and financial crises in the past few decades. And real quick before the break, if you're the kind of person who would enjoy a Simpsons reference to the national debt versus the deficit, that's the sort of stuff we put in our bi-weekly newsletter, Extra Credit. It's free, it's fun, and you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. We're back and we're talking about the national debt. All right, Hannah, tell me about this debt ceiling, this special thing that the U.S. government has that most other countries don't. The debt ceiling is a federal statute that was first enacted in 1917 and has been periodically updated since then, which sets a dollar limit on the size of the debt that the United States can owe. Here's Michael Dorff. He's a constitutional law professor at Cornell University, and Civics 101 spoke with him in 2017. It includes both debt owed to the public and to the 
uh, private actors. Uh, and in addition, it includes debt that is held internally, that is from one government account to another, so that the total figure is a little bit artificially inflated, but it's still a pretty large number. So interestingly, uh, prior to 1917, there was no debt ceiling, but there also wasn't really regular borrowing. Before 1917, Congress was in charge of approving bond sales and loans in the Treasury. So basically, every time the Treasury was planning to lend or borrow money, it had to go to Congress and be like, hey, is this okay? Yeah, essentially. The federal government did borrow money, but each time it borrowed substantial sums of money, Congress would pass a specific law that was uh, authorizing that borrowing, typically a bond issue. During World War I, Congress decided to give the Treasury more flexibility in managing the government's debt. The purpose of the debt ceiling originally was actually to empower the federal executive branch to borrow money without having to go back to Congress each time. Right, so when the Treasury uh, floats a bond, it's relying on the authority that's provided in the same original statute as created the debt ceiling. So what was a kind of a delegation from Congress to the executive branch saying, here, go ahead, borrow money without having to come back to us each time. So what happens when the federal government reaches that debt ceiling? Uh, the debt ceiling doesn't prevent the United States from taking on obligations. What it does is it prevents the government from borrowing to meet those obligations. The spending is determined by the budget and by the non-discretionary elements of uh, federal spending through entitlements. Uh, the debt ceiling doesn't prevent the government from having to pay that amount. It just says the government is not going to borrow the money to pay it, and therefore, as I said, sort of stiff people who are owed the money. This means that if the debt ceiling is not suspended or raised, the Treasury has to get creative about how to afford things it needs to pay for, or risk defaulting on payments. And ideally, we don't reach this debt ceiling. And Congress has some responsibility to prevent that from happening in the first place. Uh, the Congress has another means to control the size of the debt, which is it can adjust the laws governing how much they're going to spend, you just spend less, or how much it's going to raise. You tax more, right? That is to say, debt is entirely a function of the difference between revenues and expenditures. What the debt ceiling does is to put an artificial cap on that that's unrelated to the actual uh, difference between expenditures and revenues. So how does Congress figure out what that debt ceiling should be? Uh, really, it's a function of how much time Congress wants to give itself until the next, next debt ceiling crisis. So they look at projected uh, shortfalls of revenue over the next period, and they figure, well, in about a year, we'll have racked up another X billion dollars of debt, so we're going to raise the debt by X billion dollars, and that would be effectively giving themselves another year. They could say we're going to look uh, two years out and give themselves you know, twice that amount uh, or whatever the, uh, the appropriate figure is, but it's really just an arbitrary number uh, that is reached in highly political negotiations. Well, it sounds like Congress is sort of functioning from debt ceiling to debt ceiling. So what happens if this arbitrary number, as Michael calls it, is reached? The first and most common thing that happens is that Congress votes to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. Well, <laughs> I mean, that seems kind of like cheating. How often has the debt ceiling been raised? 
the debt ceiling has been raised, suspended, or revised 78 times since 1960. Wow. So it's gone up a lot. Has it ever been lowered? No. (laughs) But the federal debt has gone down. So in some years, there was more wiggle room for the federal government to borrow before it reached the ceiling. So basically, when the government has reached that point of needing to go into debt over the debt ceiling, rather than Congress holding to that ceiling and demanding that the Treasury find other ways to pay for things without going further into debt, they just raise the debt ceiling instead. Yes, usually. And most times, the debt ceiling is not a hugely political debate in Congress, because Forcing the government to default on loans or defund government programs comes with huge consequences. So it seems like it's unnecessary, and indeed it is unnecessary. Uh, There are really no other countries in the world that have a debt ceiling. They control their debt uh, in the same way that um, you ordinarily would by controlling spending relative to taxes. So Hannah, this is my big question. If this is usually the case... Why do we have the debt ceiling at all? Well, sometimes rather than vote to raise the debt ceiling, legislators can use the debt ceiling and the threat of defaulting as a tool for getting their own agenda across, especially if they're looking to defund a policy or program that they disagree with. Now comes the president and the Senate Majority Leader demanding that this House of Representatives surrender. We will not surrender. We're fighting for the American people. You know, I think what's interesting is People are always making trade-offs, right? Nobody likes a lot of debt, uh, but they also like certain policies. Again, this is Louise Shainer. So the reason it gets very partisan is, you know, if I'm choosing between policies that aren't consistent with my values, um, let's say I'm a Republican and there's a Democratic administration, and they're saying, oh, you can have Democratic values. We're going to spend more money on things that Democrats care about. You might say, well, I don't want to do that, so I'd rather reduce the debt. You would wonder, well, which side in such negotiations wants to keep that number smaller? And the answer is whichever side thinks that having another debt ceiling crisis sooner rather than later is going to give them additional leverage. The American people uh, don't want the president's health care bill and they don't want the government to shut down. Uh, Republicans are listening. We passed a bill last week that would do just what the American people have asked. And then when it comes to a Republican administration and they want to do things that are consistent with Republican values, like cutting taxes, then the Democrats would say, well, I don't want to do that. I'd rather reduce the debt. There have been several debt ceiling crises in the past few decades where it looked like Congress might not raise the debt ceiling. For example, in 2013, Republicans in Congress vowed to vote against raising the debt ceiling unless President Obama agreed to defund the Affordable Care Act. We should get something for further mortgage our kids' future. I'm afraid Democrats uh, just could care less. Eventually, the government went into partial shutdown, and the clock kept ticking closer to when the Treasury warned it would be too late to prevent defaulting on loans or having to take drastic measures to fund the government. The government has been shut down since last week. The country could default next week. And the president and House Speaker spent the day talking past each other. If Congress doesn't pass this debt ceiling in the next few weeks, the United States will default on its obligations. That's never happened in American history. Basically, America becomes a deadbeat. 
less than 23 hours before the federal government was going to default on its loans, Congress voted to suspend the debt ceiling for a few months. It's time for a reality check. Defunding Obamacare did not work as a strategy. So let's find common ground and work together. So even when the government has reached that debt ceiling, the government has not stopped paying its loans. The government has never intentionally defaulted on loan payments. However, this move in 2013 did hurt the approval rating of the Republican Party and harmed the country's credit rating. Quick aside to listeners, we actually did a whole episode on government shutdowns, which happen when Congress can't agree on a budget. So check that out if you're interested. So, Hannah, what's the connection between a debt ceiling crisis and a government shutdown? I want to distinguish between a government shutdown and a debt ceiling crisis. Government shutdowns occur when Congress doesn't allocate funding for particular measures, either because they fail to pass a budget or they fail to pass a continuing resolution that extends the existing budget. Uh, Each of the government shutdowns we've had in the past few decades have been a result of that kind of a standoff, a failure to enact a budget. The government never defaulted in any of those cases. That is to say, there was sufficient borrowing authority for the government to meet its uh, outstanding obligations. It's just that additional and new services weren't uh, being provided because there wasn't sufficient money allocated. There wasn't any money allocated. You know, it's so interesting to me that the threat of this kind of default has given politicians leverage to try to defund or reduce the funding of certain programs they don't like, even though that kind of default would be catastrophic for people's everyday lives. And not only just because it would mean that people didn't have access to government services or funding, but because it would seriously damage our relationships with countries, private individuals, businesses that all hold our debt. Right. The national debt is always going to be political. But the debt ceiling has introduced another layer into those politics by using our country's financial reputation as a bargaining chip. So it's very difficult to get out of the partisanship because there are trade-offs, right? Reducing the debt might be good, but, you know, spending more on education, if you care about education, might be good too. You know, I think partisanship is here to stay, which is why... You sort of, it seems like we're going to have to get to a place where people start to get a little bit more nervous about the debt for people to say, okay, let's kind of compromise. But if it doesn't seem like an urgent thing and people have very different views on what should be done, it gets harder to get to yes and to compromise. That is it for today. This episode was written and produced by Christina Phillips, Hannah McCarthy, and me, Nick Capodice. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton and Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Broke for Free, Caslow, Peerless, Pulsed, Scott Holmes, New Teal Records, Audio Hertz, Shaolin Dub, Twin Musicom, and the artist who never raises the debt ceiling on his music, Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Yeah.